Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent forth his word and healed them and saved them from the grave. Father, thank you for sending your son. Lord Jesus, thank you for your obedience to the Father. Holy Spirit, thank you for guiding us into all truth. Fill us and fill this place. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Please think, if you will, back to when you first learned to drive. Well, that's going to be a long time ago for a lot of us. But do you remember being taught how to navigate an intersection? There were so many rules. There were rules for open intersections. There were rules for roundabouts. And the nagging question always seemed to be, who is it that has the right-of-way right now? New drivers learn rather quickly that there is much more to successfully navigating an intersection than just knowing green means go. But imagine for a moment that your understanding of intersections was dominated by that one rule. What do you suppose would happen if there was a car in front of you when the light turned green, or if there was a person late getting through the crosswalk, or if a car ran the light on the cross street? Disaster. To be sure, green means go is a really important thing to know about intersections, but if that is the only thing in your mind as you approach one, you're going to find yourself in a lot of trouble. Clearly, there are several different things that one needs to hold in tension to wisely navigate an intersection. Brothers and sisters, the same thing is true when we contemplate the cross of Christ and most of Holy Scripture. Every Sunday we confess, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. We know that God becoming man and offering himself as a perfect sacrifice was necessary for us and for our salvation. But it seems only natural, especially for those of us who grew up in Western culture, to then ask questions like, well, how? How did Jesus' death, and we, I think, must also attach and resurrection, do the glorious things that it did? How did Christ's death deal with the problem of sin and allow men to be reconciled to God? To be fair, it does not seem like the first Christians were as concerned with these how questions as we are today. Jesus' death did what it did. That's enough. But that does not mean that the church fathers were completely silent on such matters. Holy Scripture does give us glimpses into the glorious mystery of the cross. Once again, 
types and shadows found in the Old Testament find their ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. What does Holy Scripture teach us about the efficacy of the cross of Christ? The primary way Jesus' death and resurrection has been understood by the church for centuries is as a victory over the powers of evil that once enslaved us to sin and death. We see this emphasized in Scripture from the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, when God pronounced judgment after the disobedience of Adam and Eve, he dealt with the serpent first, saying in Genesis chapter 3, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This prophecy, of course, finds fulfillment in Jesus. Paul speaks of the victory won by Jesus on the cross in his letter to the Colossians. He draws on the image of a Roman triumph, which is essentially an ancient parade where a victorious general would lead a defeated enemy through the streets of Rome, publicly humiliating them. Listen to Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. By the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection has also been understood by the church as an act of expiation, whereby the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin so that we might be reconciled to God. We see this prefigured in the sacrificial system that God gave Israel to his people so they might live in his presence. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. This type or shadow also finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The author of Hebrews lauds the expiatory nature of Christ's sacrifice when he says in Hebrews chapter 9, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctifies them so that they are outwardly clean, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Jesus' death and resurrection has been understood by the church as a substitutionary act whereby Jesus paid a price for us and accepted the consequences of sin on our behalf. We see this prefigured in the book of Genesis when God instructs Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, up Mount Moriah to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And then Genesis chapter 22 says, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. 
Once again, the type or shadow finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The substitutionary nature of Jesus' death is also expressed in passages like 1 Peter 3.18, which says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Why, why am I giving all this? Well, our Old Testament and gospel readings today present us with yet another way that the church has gloried in the cross of Christ for centuries. Jesus' death and resurrection has a medicinal value for our souls and for our bodies. Today's Old Testament reading prefigures the healing power of the cross, and Jesus confirms that he is the ultimate fulfillment of that figure when he says in John 3.14, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let us together marvel for a moment at the spectacular parallels between the Old Testament account of Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness and the crucifixion of the Lord. The Old Testament lesson begins by saying that the people of Israel became impatient during their journey towards the promised land. They came to despise God's provision for them, and they spoke against God, and God judged his people. God sent venomous serpents among them, and those who had developed a biting tongue were bitten in turn. I think it's interesting that the word translated serpent in this passage is the word seraphim, meaning fire. This is most likely a reference to the burning sensation that the serpent's venom would have produced in its victim. When Adam and Eve became impatient with the boundaries God had set for them in the garden, they despised God's commands. They bit into the forbidden fruit, and as it were, they were bitten in return. Now all of us have the venom of the original serpent coursing through our veins. We are, as Ephesians says, by nature children of wrath. Brothers and sisters, there is still a fire that accompanies the judgment of God. The Israelites became sorry for their sin and repented. They asked Moses to pray that the serpents be taken away. But God did not take away the serpents. But he did provide a way to be healed of their bite. Justice and mercy are eternal attributes of God. Because God is just, he does not take away the consequences of sin from us. But because he is merciful, God does offer healing to those who are truly sorry and repent of their sin. God told Moses to fashion a serpent and to raise it up on a pole to bring healing to the people. When Moses did this, the likeness of a cursed creature 
that had brought punishment and death was transformed into a source of healing and life. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, Galatians chapter 3 says he became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. Jesus took the ultimate symbol of torture, degradation, and death in the ancient world, and so thoroughly transformed it that perhaps within 20 years, Paul would write to the Galatians, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Did you know that the church father, Tertullian, tells us that the practice of tracing the sign of the cross on oneself was well-established Christian practice by the early second century, within a hundred years after the death of Jesus. He writes, at every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at table, when we light the lamps, on couch, on seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon the forehead the sign. Can you imagine people speaking today about the electric chair the way Paul spoke about the cross? Can you imagine people going about their day wearing an electric chair around their neck or tracing the outline of the electric chair on their forehead. That's what people were doing because of the transforming power that Jesus Christ had on that symbol. Moses admonished the people to look upon the serpent and those who did were healed. The figure brought temporal life to those who beheld it. We are admonished to look upon Jesus, by whose wounds, Isaiah 53, 5 says, we are healed. Christ draws the poison of the original serpent out of our veins, and the reality brings everlasting life to those who behold it by faith. As the church father Augustine wrote, just as they who looked on that serpent perished not by the serpent's bite, so they who look in faith on Christ's death are healed from the bite of sin. Brothers and sisters, do you see that the cross of Christ represents an intersection of several profound and glorious truths? When we approach the cross, we must do so on our knees and hold these truths in healthy tension with one another. The Western Christian tradition may emphasize one truth about the cross. The Eastern Christian tradition may emphasize another, and that is fine, but there must be balance. When we hold to one truth in Scripture, but fail to hold it accountable to other truths in Scripture, 
Even the truth that we have becomes less true because it becomes distorted. We try to make it do things it was not meant to do. All Scripture is God-breathed. We must submit our minds and our hearts to all of it, not just to those passages that agree with us, and not just to those passages that fit our conception of God. Let us now humble ourselves as we consider how these things can benefit us as we continue in our journey through Lent. I'd like you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about the things that we read about in the Old Testament. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all ate the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Paul says that passages like the one we heard today are warnings for God's people. Did you notice the baptismal and Eucharistic language that he used to describe the people of Israel? Baptism and the Eucharist were the defining practices of Christian communities, yet Paul applies them to Israel to say that our situations are parallel. God will hold as a people accountable under the new covenant, just as he held people accountable under the old. In fact, we are even more accountable because we have the reality of Jesus. While they had types and the figures and the shadows. Paul is caring for us. He's saying, dear ones, be careful. The things you are handling are serious. Sometimes we must reestablish in our hearts and minds a healthy tension between the truth of God's lavish grace and mercy towards us and the truth that he is holy and he is just expects us to obey him. Consider our gospel reading, which contains the most quoted uh, verse and most easy to see verse during football games in the entire Bible. In it, we see the mercy of God readily enough, but do you see his justice as well? 
John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I think some would read John 3.16 to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so no one will perish, but all will have everlasting life. That's not what it says. John 3.16 says that there are two kinds of people in this world. Those that are being saved and those that are perishing because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this has been true from the start. Remember the two thieves crucified by Jesus. Even then was not one perishing while the other was being saved? Consider our epistle. You're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, Paul establishing a healthy tension between the extravagant benefits of adoption into the family of God and the gravity of that adoption. Watch the back and forth. It begins, you were dead. You were children of wrath like everyone else. And that sobering truth. But here's a glorious one. God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's incredible. But lest you think that somehow you deserved it, it was by grace that you have been saved. Yet look how God has honored us. He has raised us up with him, Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Marvelous. But remember, Paul says, it was by grace that you have been saved. Yes, you did have to respond through faith. But because God took the initiative, even that was not by your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Brothers and sisters, we are not self-made men and women. Paul continues, for he has made us what we are. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Do you hear expectation there? We are not our own. We are his. We owe our hearts, our souls, and our very lives to him. Dear ones, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, and I... I be lifted up from the earth will draw all men unto me. Jesus was lifted up. He was lifted up to win the victory. He was lifted up to take our place. He was lifted up to cleanse us from sin. He was lifted up to heal our souls and our bodies. Therefore, let us approach the cross of Christ with joy and thanksgiving 
and with fear and trembling, for he is very present. Our friend, our brother, our Lord, and our God, Jesus Christ the righteous, is here, and he lives and reigns with the Father and the Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.